0: Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not Cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world with Uli Baer. Who has the right to speak on a college campus? Today I will be speaking with Joan Scott, Professor Emerita at the Institute for Advanced Study. Professor Scott is the author of many books, including Gender and the Politics of History, The Politics of the Veil, and the Fantasy of Feminist History. She's also the author of an article, Gender, a Useful Category of Historical Analysis, that is probably one of the most widely cited essays in contemporary historiography. We'll be talking about who has the right to speak on a college campus, how universities decide who can be given that right, and whether there are any limits to anybody who wants a platform in a university. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Professor Joan Scott, for joining us on podcast on free speech today. I'm thrilled to have you here, and I just want to introduce you briefly, uh, Professor Merida, at the School for Social Studies at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton University, and uh, not at Princeton University. The
1: Institute for Advanced Study has no the connection Admi- Advanced Study, to which Princeton University. To be located close in to the other town in the town of Princeton, <laughs> New Princeton. Jersey.
0: Good to, good to know that <laughs> I didn't know that. Um, And I want to say that two essays, The Evidence of Experience and Gender as a Useful Category, have been so fundamentally important for so many people, including myself. So I'm really happy to have you here today. I won't list all your other books, but I wanted to start us out by maybe reflecting on what happened about a year ago, which is the rally at Charlottesville at the University of Virginia campus, and sort of maybe take a moment to think about what happened about a year ago and how to actually make sense of that a year later.
1: That's hard. Yes. (laughs) I just want to say, too, I'm glad to be here, and thank you very much for for inviting me. I felt at the time that I was stunned, both by the Nazi flags and by the Ku Klux Klan, those torches. And my first thought, which was entirely naive for a historian, was whatever happened to the judgment of history? I was thinking of the Nuremberg trials. I was thinking of the stuff we know about the Klan here, that these things had become indefensible, off the record, that they were the, the evil past that would never come back. And I kept thinking, knowing, of course, that these things do return, that they're always undercurrents of right-wing fascist identification and, and support. Still, I thought, how could this be that here in a public place at a major uh, university, we were seeing a display of extreme right-wing expression that should not have been allowed to take place?
0: People felt it should have been allowed, as you know, very clearly. A lot of people leading up to it thought the neo-Nazis have every right to demonstrate and particularly should actually come to a university so the ideas would be aired. And as you just said, maybe some people thought these ideas have been settled. That History sort of rendered a verdict that most people actually, as we know, not all people, but most people thought this is no longer worthy of debate. This is not what America needs to be engaged with in a kind of massive way. And at the same time, there were enough people, clearly, who felt we need to revive these ideas, bring them to the forefront, and use the university. And that's what I'm interested in, use the university as a platform or a stage to bring something to the attention of the nation.
1: I, In principle, in terms of First Amendment free speech rights, the Nazis marching in Skokie years ago, I don't disagree with that. On the other hand, I don't think a university is the place to discuss what are political ideals or ideas of a kind that have already been defined as outside the discourse of the principles of the university. It's not as if Nazis or the Klan want to listen to anybody else. They don't come to engage in free debate and discussion. They come to denounce Jews or blacks or multiculturalism or the left or whatever it is they're there to denounce, but they're not there to engage in the debate and dialogue and serious discussion that universities are meant to, and that the University of Virginia, the home of Thomas Jefferson, are meant to do.
0: If we stay with this for a moment, because you've also worked so much on academic freedom in your own work... When you said some ideas maybe are settled and sort of strict First Amendment doctrine, they would be, of course, permitted to be brought into the you know, town square, street corner, et cetera, with some restrictions, even as we recognize some restrictions there. But you're saying in the university, is what are the mechanisms in the university to decide what ideas maybe have been settled, don't need to be revived and brought back, and which ideas are kind of worthy of investigating again, of sort of reconsidering, reopening up some dossier of history that we thought had been closed?
1: It's a hard question, but my sense is that those that have to do with the extermination of others, of another group that are dedicated to eradicating the presence of those they have defined as enemies, and that the commitment of the people who are raising those ideas has to be to open debate and conversation about them rather than simply the assertion of the truth of those ideas.
0: Do you think there's um, any value in actually bringing this up as something to be debated? Because there's a kind of bright line. There are some ideas that are not really ideas. They're actually just sort of opinions that some people shouldn't live on the planet. That's not even really an intellectual idea. Well, I
1: guess it's interesting, as a historian, I'm interested in knowing where those ideas come from, how they've been used, what sorts of justifications for what kinds of policies They've been used to, to to defend. When I taught in Western Civ at the University of Chicago a hundred years mm-hmm. ago, we used to read Hitler's Mein Kampf. And we read it as evidence of how far genocidal thinking could go. And we analyzed it in terms of the economic, social, political history of Germany in the 19th and, and 20th centuries. So I think... The presence of those ideas is not the issue. It's the way in which they're approached and how they're understood and whether they're a question of political advocacy or intellectual conversation. In fact, in in France right now, Charles Maurras, who was one of the Action Francaise leaders, the far-right nationalist group, deeply anti-Semitic, is coming back. There are professors of philosophy who are arguing that his ideas should be taught once again. And this, of course, has a lot to do with Islamophobia, with it's not so much anti-Semitism as it is the presence of immigrants, particularly Muslim immigrants in France, that this is being used to sort of think again. I think studying the writings of Charles Moraz mm-hmm. is okay and asking questions again, as I said, about their origins, their provenance, their uses is part of what a university should be doing. It's that if there were a course that said, this is the key to establishing the truth of French national identity, then I would have a problem.
0: So the line may be between kind of analysis or teaching and advocacy, as you said. Yeah. Simone Weil says at some point in one of her writings, she said, anybody can write anything and publish anything. The most horrific ideas can be published. As soon as they enter the public sphere to become advocacy, they should be restricted. Mm -hmm. And she says this is not a contradiction at all with freedom of the press or freedom of opinion, but she said political advocacy is something different from analysis, from thought, and from opinion. Why do you think in Charlottesville there was what seemed to me a bit of a confusion leading up to the rally? Because a lot of people... In this country, a lot of liberals took a very strong position and said, this is like Skokie. We did the right thing in Skokie. We're all, I guess, somewhat gratified that the Nazis got to march in 77 near Chicago, which we don't know whether that was good or bad, but a lot of people in the ACLU still think it's good. A lot of people left the ACLU back then. Why were people not so clear, do you think? Or why would people have been surprised of what happened in Charlottesville then?
1: I guess, (laughs) And, and here I'm... I'm sort of entering the terrain of contemporary history in right. ways that I know speculation. Right. <laughs> I think part of it has to do with the times that we're living in right now and the sense of an increased mobilization and visibility of far-right ideas, of racist white supremacists and violent ideas. Those guys marching were armed, some of them. I don't think there's a right to bear arms in defense of your advocacy. Those guys were looking to provoke the problem that they, or the troubles that they provoked. And I think, in fact, I would extend this more more broadly and say that what we're in now is a moment when the First Amendment has become the tool of right-wing groups looking to portray themselves as victims of the dogmatic left, so that the way in which campuses are being portrayed by someone like Charlie Kirk of whatever it's called, I can never remember the name of his organization, The Truth on Campus. Group.
0: Not FIRE? One of no, no. Other. FIRE
1: is is sort of more, more interesting the in worst, a way yes. because those guys are yes. libertarians right. with a, a right wing bent, but they'll defend the left as well. But no, th- this group is the campus something or other, and he argues that universities are centers of authoritarianism, of left-wing authoritarianism. So there is, I think, a concerted movement on the right to attack universities as, I would say, as centers of critical thinking, they are saying as centers of left-wing propaganda.
0: Right. And this has been going on for quite a while. There's kind of the idea of tenured radicals and that the university's been taken over by sort of postmodernists who dispute the truth. What's ironic is that somehow we're living in an age where the truth and facts are easy to get rid of, and then somehow this kind of post-structuralist or postmodern thinking in common parlance is blamed for that. Yeah. But this attack on the universities has two parts. There's an attack on the university as deciding what actually merits debate, that a university would say, for example, we do not need to invite speakers who advocate the extermination or the expulsion of certain groups. It's un-American. Mm-hmm. It goes against all of our principles. And the other side of saying that universities are too liberal in a kind of political sense, and we need more conservative thinkers to balance that out so students get exposed to all ideas. Why do you think people got the second part a little bit wrong and thought, well, maybe there's a point. There's too many liberals in the universities. we got to you know, season it with a few conservatives, and they end up bringing the Nazis on campus. <laughs> the step seems... Strange to me that, well, not strange as you said. The First Amendment kind of opened up something for people who I think want to have a common sense approach and say, "Well, everybody should speak, and we should just let them have their say, and then people can argue with them, and then move on."
1: Well, I think, and you referred to stuff that I've written about this. I think that, and here also, I follow Robert Post, with whom I know you've you've had um, a long conversation. The university is not a place of free, free speech. Yes, out of classrooms it is. Yes, if the young Republicans want to invite somebody to their meetings, fine. But in the classroom and in terms of what happens in a university, it's not a matter of political polemics. It's not a matter of anything goes. Universities are places where people who teach are certified by long, sometimes terrible processes of... (laughs) courses and they're they're inducted into their discipline in rigorous and disciplined ways. And they come out certified to teach what it is they teach. And so the idea that students are free to challenge them or that we have to have as many Republicans as Democrats on university faculties or we have to have affirmative action for conservatives puts a test of ideological purity against the disciplinary training that is the basis for what makes a university different from people reading a newspaper or going to the library or something. The university is a place where you learn, or you should learn, how to think critically about all of the complexities and difficulties of particular problems not a place of indoctrination.
0: This is really interesting to think the university is a slightly different place. It has slightly different rules, like all human Mm -hmm. organizations. They're kind of rules of the game or rules of conduct. Many of them are norms that are not written in stone. We just adhere to them. One of them is to treat one another with respect. One is a certain kind of regulation of language. You cannot use racial epithets or slurs or things like that in university settings, not even outside of the classroom People already bristle here and think, well, anything should be sayable. And they actually turn the argument on its head and say, no, the university should be more open than the public. It should Mm -hmm. have more ideas. And it's interesting to me why the public conversations about university actually doesn't want to say the university is a special place where we can sort of practice democratic living together. But they say, no, it should be the more unregulated one.
1: Don't you think that some of it has to do with the loss of prestige for expertise, knowledge, that, that somehow or another we're in a moment, and I don't know how to quite explain it, in which expertise is no longer valued for what it was. So, I mean, the, the extreme example is the current president's uh, cabinet, which consists of political buddies or people he likes who have little or no experience for the jobs that they're assigned to. So I, I was reading something about Scott Pruitt <laughs> in, in which it said that most of the guys he's hired in the environmental agency or in the Department of the Interior are not have never had any experience in things like a toxic waste cleanup or don't know anything about climate science or don't you know they're, they're a whole set of expert knowledges. That are no longer held in the kind of regard that they once were,
0: which is what the university's province is actually to have. That's science, what's supposed to produce to have evidence-based knowledge, to have you know rigorous research that is tested. And in some way, the public perception is that there's a suspicion that this is just a cabal of experts who affirm each other, who appoint each other. They only have one way of thinking. And Charlottesville, I think, put this to the test in a way mm-hmm. because. As I said, and I've told you this before, I had an editor of a national magazine tell me the day after Charlottesville, uh, when we were at a dinner in, in New York, and he expressed great surprise and said, to be honest, I didn't know the Nazis don't really come to sh- debate. I think they should come to campus and you should defeat them with reason. And I actually said, as an editor in, 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 of an American national magazine, whether he actually knows what has happened to minority communities in this country for hundreds of years, and if we've ever talked to anybody who's been the target of racial hatred, and he said, well, but still we should debate with them. And then, they, and then I said, and then what will happen? And he actually thought people will then maybe see the light and see their ideas are wrong. So in some ways they keep on using this argument of science and reason, reason as if that were a way to defeat certain things. The same thing is happening what you're saying when there's a cabinet now and a government that doesn't really believe in science and reason. And the other side tries to come up with arguments that are based on reason. So how do you play with somebody who doesn't adhere to the same rules of the game? How do you actually bring the university back into this conversation?
1: I'm not sure I know. I mean, I think I'm persuaded by an argument that Chris Newfield makes. He's a a professor um, at the University of California at Santa Barbara, and he has a blog about higher education. It's really, it's really insightful. And he argues that What's happened over the last 30 years has been a steady erosion of public support for universities and the transfer of costs as state funding, he's looking at state universities mostly, as state funding has gone down, as public funding has gone down, the students are increasingly taxed with increased tuition. And so tuition has gone up, the students blame the university for this enormous burden that they're having to carry. And the parents blame the university. And so the scrutiny of the university takes place in terms of a kind of cost evaluation of, am I getting a job out of this? Um, Am I getting confirmed in some of the ideas that I already have? Rather than when I went to university, the whole point was to transform, to come in with your fixed ideas, to call them into question, maybe not to give them up, but certainly to have a better sense of why you believed the things you did than when you when you came in and now some of that is gone now it's much more instrumental i need this education i'm paying all of this money for it and chris newfield argues that it's partly that administrators of universities made a bad bargain with state legislatures and agreed to assume more of the financial burden in the form of higher tuition and greater student loans. So the whole sense of corruption of the enterprise seems to me to tide in many ways to something that's been going on for 25 or 30 years. That is the the steady underfunding, the steady decline of the identification of what goes on in a university with a public good.
0: Right, right. Interesting. I mean, the the trend has been... In the University of California system used to be in the 90s, just about 70% of tuition was covered by the state, and now it's about 29%. It's even, I think it's even less. And that's borne by parents, and in some ways, that is the second largest expense for many American families after their home. Mm-hmm. The other fact remains that being in the university and getting a degree, a college degree, actually improves your kind of earning potential and hopefully also your life, sort of your happiness in your life vastly. So it still remains an entry ticket into the middle class. And I think this tension is interesting that the university has somehow keeps on losing ground in that argument when the only thing that's featured is it's so expensive and what do you really learn there? You're just taught by these liberal professors, these useless things. And the university is much larger than a few historians or literary scholars or philosophers like us. It's a lot of business schools and economics who actually have taken this up as well and jumped into this and said, yeah, we can educate people to get jobs.
1: And the emphasis on STEM studies rather than the humanities and social sciences. In some of the satellite campuses at the University of Wisconsin, they are now eliminating all the social sciences and humanities, arguing that they don't give you access to jobs. You can have you don't have sociology anymore, but you can have social work. You don't have political science anymore, but you can have
0: public policy, public
1: policy, or government,
0: which are fine fields, but they have become kind of training training, grants, training ground o- for a profession rather than a kind of intellectual endeavor in itself. It's interesting to think that an event such as Charlottesville provokes a lot of national kind of concern, and I think. What also happened, the students really started to question whether universities are truly committed to principles of equality and what we would call today inclusion, Mm -hmm. and they didn't trust that the university isn't bringing white supremacists on campus because maybe, just maybe, someone in the administration wants to have a white supremacist occasionally. And I think what happened is that when President Trump kind of equivocated afterwards, he did exactly, I think, what all liberals try to do all summer is to say there are two sides to this. we got to be balanced. we got to look at every angle and in this clumsy way. And with this gift for blowing up politically correct taboos, he said exactly what I'd heard the entire summer from every liberal in America. That's really said, interesting. Well, we got to let these right-wing people come to campus. And I've had students talk to me and say, how come the university screens out people who are not experts in fields? So somebody who thinks in your field in French history, say Hannah Arendt makes this example once. No one would be invited to things that Belgium invaded France in 1914. It's just not factually true. It's, that's just a fact, and no one would invite a historian. But somehow the national discussion has been, but we must invite racists, race scientists, and people who really dispute the equality of human beings. And the students have to be assured that the university invites them only on a principle of engaging and not of endorsing that viewpoint. So I think what is really tricky about the university, as you said, it's lost a bit of its status as the kind of arbiter of truth. And then the students are looking at their own universities. And what you said, they distrust us. They say, we're paying so much money here. We're being treated like consumers. We want a product. And then you're bringing in somebody who doesn't just challenge but disputes my right to be here Mm -hmm. in in an incredibly dangerous way and administrators and presidents are caught short and saying well we're just doing this in the name of free speech and open debate and the students don't have that kind of trust in the moral leadership of the university or of institutions and saying are you really bringing them in to help us learn things or are you maybe bringing them in to unsettle this place a little bit.
1: It's interesting the way you put it because, of course, there is in the student body these organized right-wing student groups who are inviting the Richard Spencers and Milo Yiannopoulos of the world. I mean, those groups are in place on campus, supported often by outside monies, the Koch Foundation being the, the largest donor to all of that there's a division even among students. But I think what's interesting in what you're saying is that so many of these students who, who look upon these speakers who are invited as a violation of their sense of belonging to an intellectual community. And in fact, in cases like Yiannopoulos, he singles out blacks or trans people or whomever and ridicules them and does says terrible things about them. I think that that is the result of a concerted effort on the part of the right. I don't think I'm paranoid. I've, people might have accused me of paranoia a while ago, but I don't think it's paranoid these days to say that there's a concerted effort on the part of right-wing think tanks to undermine the credibility of the university. And the First Amendment was the way they were going to do it.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree, and I think this is the first step, and you'll have one Richard Spencer or one Milo here, but next you'll hear and you have legislature ordering you to hire a creationist in biology and ordering you to hire another conservative thinker and determining how the university actually establishes its intellectual profile.
1: Have you been following what's going on at at George Mason University? Yes. First in Florida and now at George Mason University, where the students did a Freedom of Information Act request and got the emails between the university administrators and the Koch Foundation representatives in which they said— we will give this money to uh, study uh, free enterprise and free markets if you hire an economist who has these and these and these qualities. We have the right to evaluate this faculty member's productivity and writings and we'll withdraw the money if we're not getting our money's right. worth. <laughs> so it's a
0: way for sort of big money or the outside or politics, legisl- legislatures to control what is being discussed I would like to go back for a moment to kind of the students because I'm quite interested and I'm going to talk to some students. I had this strong impression that they had been caricatured and actually demeaned in the press as Mm -hmm. saying they're oversensitive snowflakes, they are offended, they are too emotional, they're irrational, they can't handle a joke. And they sounded to me the way women have been denigrated for 2,000 years. It was exactly the way people talked about women and saying you're not driven by reason but by passion, you're not coherent, you're emotional, you don't have the capacity of abstract thinking, and you can't take a joke, and you should put up with this because it'll make you more resilient in the future. Somehow students hit on something else and said, no, we are in the university, we have been admitted, we do not need anybody in a lecture hall telling us that we don't fully belong as human beings. And this it's something I learned from the work of Richard Delgado and Mary Matsuda and Kimberly Crenshaw and people in critical race studies who said, if you invite one racist or one misogynist speaker, and everybody else says this is a horrible person, and I, of course, I would never condone something like this. It unsettles all the women, all the minorities, and it benefits all the other mm-hmm. white men in the space who are not misogynists, of course, and who are not racists, of course, and somehow it it creates a climate we'll you'll have to be on their toes. So I would be kind of interested in why the students' response has been maligned as they're just offended and it's about offense and feelings rather than it's about an actual right of equal participation.
1: I think there are two aspects to it. One is that in some cases the students actually have framed their demands in terms of customer satisfaction because that's the framework in which they're operating. So the notion that I don't feel safe here, or I'm not comfortable here, or the university is should be my home and doesn't make me feel that way, I think some of that has to do with the fact that that's the language they have, because that's the language by which the university has defined who they are. So the political claims that you're able to make has everything to do with how the institution in which you are defines you. And so the political claims of students in a university, in some cases, is about my membership in the community, my being part of this family, all in in sort of quotes. You're not making me feel comfortable here. I think that's some of it. I think some of it is, again, a deliberate misreading of the students in terms of emotional expression, when in fact that's not the issue. A student told me a story about Brown University, where a group of students were protesting some speaker who had been coming to campus, and the students were peacefully outside of the lecture hall, holding signs, and the diversity and inclusion officer arrived. Most of these diversity and inclusion officers are professionals, they are not academics, They don't have the experience of teaching and intellectual exchange that comes with the university. They're there to sort of psychologically handle. And this woman came up to this student and said, how can we make you feel better? And the student said, this is a political protest. We're politically opposed to what this guy stands for. This is not about how we feel. She said, well, come to see me in my office and we'll see if we can do something to make you feel better about this. So there's a, a, an attitude on the part of people who are dealing with some of these student protests that in advance defines their situation as psychological rather than as political.
0: I think that's a really key part of this debate about this, that sort of, is it, and the words you just said, when people are told, we're gonna to make you feel better, or we're gonna make you feel included, we know none of these words are really sufficient, when the students say, I want to feel safe on this campus, for me, it resonates very strongly with Black Lives Matter, because that's what actually preceded all of this, that there were Black Lives Matter protests in many universities. Mm -hmm. And people weren't saying, I want to feel better here. I want to feel happier. I want to feel safe in America. And I have a right. And I've always been surprised when we've been engaged in these First Amendment debates, and somehow the incredible enthusiasm and passion for the First Amendment is not matched by the incredible enthusiasm for the 14th Amendment. I wish I would have as many people, including the ACLU and all these right wing pundits, say the 14th Amendment is the bedrock principle of America. I think the students are touching on that, but as you're saying, they're also using a language that is kind of we deserve this because we pay here. This is a community. We want to be treated like everybody else to not feel excluded. But I think behind that is something else. And that's what's kind of interesting to listen to a generation and say, what are they actually asking? asking. And from a larger historical perspective, what happened over the last 50 years in American higher education? There have been some strides made. There are definitely women were admitted to universities and minority students were admitted. And I think this generation is saying right now, we've been here for 50 years and we're still being asked and to justify whether we really belong. Yeah. Could you say something about this sort of, especially I think in, there's an intersection of um, women students and minority students and the discussion about women is sort of not quite at the foreground, but as we know, there are also real challenges in universities for the, for the experience and the safety of women.
1: I mean, I think you're right. And the question I would ask is why it's not being understood in the terms you've just defined it, but why it's being defined as disruptive and disorderly interference with freedom of speech. Because one of the interesting things in all of these protests is that the, the right-wing protests are punished far less and given far less negative press than the left-wing ones. So you have uh, right-wing demonstrations or disruptions or horrible things being said, and that's acceptable, that's okay. You have students protesting these things in the, the name of what you're talking about, of this is our place too. These are the principles of the Fourteenth Amendment and of the university and of the of the nation. And
0: the title Nine Equality and title is actually nine, a legal mandate.
1: Um, is is a legal mandate? How come we're being treated as the disruptive force when it's these people who are actually disrupting things? And I think again, that is the um, that was the aim of this focus around the First Amendment and of the free speech rights of so-called discriminated against conservative victims of the left. I think that was deliberately done, and it's worked. There are universities that now have—Chicago is one—that now have rules of behavior and conduct, which include a kind of extreme punishment for what's called—what's disruption, disruption not being defined. So the difference between the heckling of a speaker and the protests with signs outside of the speech— There's no distinction made there.
0: This is interesting. There's a kind of a martyrdom on the side of these right-wing speakers who are shut down by these out-of-control students. And this has been the perception of the media. What I find amazing is how many people tell me every day, oh, you work in a university. Can you even say what you want? Isn't it all politically correct, trigger warnings, safe spaces, and restrictions? And I look at them and I say, no, it's the opposite, actually. People discuss all sorts of incredibly difficult things in classrooms that you wouldn't discuss in public anymore. So you're right to ask, why has the university ended up in this place? And what I think about a lot, that's why I have these conversations, is how does the university explain itself better in a non-defensive way, to the public of what it actually does, rather than being kind of railroaded into this corner and saying, you're shutting down speech and we must protect these people.
1: One of the ways is for administrators to stop thinking about the legal consequences of what they're doing and stand by the principles that, as educators, they ought to be endorsing. I did a, a little research thing a while ago and discovered there's this firm which advises thousands of universities in this country on risk management. And so what happens in some of these instances is that Richard Spencer asks to come to a university, and instead of the university administrators calling together the faculty and saying, we're going to have a problem, what should we do about this, they call their risk management lawyers. So it becomes a question of insurance of representing the brand of the university, the, the kind of commercial considerations of the the university's image in the public. And I think these right-wing groups have played on that as well. So rather than a kind of turning to one's faculty as the source, as it should be, the source of dealing with difficult questions of politics and principle, the administrators turn to groups who have nothing to do with Educating like a, a university. It becomes positive. a PR problem. It becomes a PR and, and an insurance it,
0: problem. What you're saying is there's a larger crisis, actually, the university is already part of, which is a political attack on the university's claims on being able to decide what knowledge matters, how it matters, what exactly. evidence is. And I would be curious to hear what you think if this is not taking place in universities? What do you think faculty should do on their own? Because what I definitely think is an observation that may be correct, that faculty in many units or departments don't think this touches them at all. In the sciences, in some some other areas, I think this is not really an issue for us. This is a cultural, political issue. We don't do that. We only teach other things. They all teach the same students, effectively. And the larger crisis you're identifying is for the university to have become the battleground for a bigger challenge in our culture. So how does the university take a position in this? Devin Nunes, the congressman from California, he said the great enemies of the American people are Hollywood and academia. And this is actually, I think, for universities maybe to say we may have a crisis because a Richard Spencer shows up. But we have a much bigger crisis right now, which is the legitimacy of the university itself. To go back to something I said earlier, because I'm interested in your perspective on this, do you think this intersects with women in the university and the role of women's studies in the university is kind of a litmus test or a model of the role of the university in a democracy? They say it's considered not really important, kind of something no one really needs to think about, and it's not really a way to understand all of society. Gender is a specific limited issue, and we could do without it. And if you extrapolate to say that's what people say about the university, we don't really need them, they're just liberal bastions, we can just train people yeah. for jobs, and this is not really an important way of framing cultural analysis. That's really interesting. It's, my sister actually said that. <laughs> so. It's actually an interesting
1: idea because some of the very earliest attacks on universities at the time in the, was it the late 90s or early 2000s when David Horowitz was pushing his student bill of rights, funded by him, but I think also by ALEC, the uh, Koch brothers, legislative, blah, blah. They were trying to get state legislatures to get rid of women's studies programs. I mean, the, the attack was against any social justice programs. David Horowitz was saying that what social justice really meant was communism. (laughs) And (laughs) and I was at a testimony once for AAUP, and he was there. He warned them about the communist menace of women's studies and other social justice programs. And we were saying, you know, no, this is not about communism. This is about studying areas that have not been studied before. This is about things that are important and central.
0: Could you say one other thing? So... If feminism isn't communism, let's say what is it in America in some ways for for listeners? Because I have this every generation of students. I ask my students, Are you feminists? My current generation, 2017, they all raised their hands. Every single one, including all the men. Mm-hmm. Twelve years ago they didn't. And they said, I don't want to be a feminist because I think those people are against even women liking men, et cetera. Right. There had been a kind of the backlash had been so deep, but so, it's not communism, probably. What is social justice that in America? Well, I
1: think i certainly feminism is about <laughs> equality. Yes, it, it, I, it, it, I would... however, that's defined, and it's and it's loosely defined. It's not we don't really know what perfect equality is and what uh, equality between the sexes would mean in every aspect of of life. But certainly, it's an ideal, it's an aspirational goal, which is that the greater equality, between men and women, and the possibilities. There was a woman who was one of the founders of the Women's College in Brown University, Sarah Doyle, her name was, who said that women's sphere was of infinite and indeterminate radius. And I always loved that, because that means anything is possible, and that we can imagine for ourselves and for our daughters and for our sons possibilities that are not confined to of strict regulatory norms about what gendered behavior should actually mean. So for me, it's not communism, but it's a kind of ideal of equality among difference right. that needs to be acted upon yep. and, and sought after. Which
0: I would think is kind of Madison and Jefferson, a kind of an equality in a plurality mm-hmm. in, a, in a very pluralistic society, and I think. What's striking is that it's 2017 or 18 and we're looking at the same debates and that people are actually disputing that equality is a foundational principle. I know. I've been told that our Constitution doesn't really have a strong commitment to equality. And I actually thought the amendments belong to the Constitution now and they have been and they do. ratified. And uh, and people said, no, the First Amendment is really important, but the 14th one is kind of of lesser significance. And I'm interested in this, that what are you saying, feminism is about equality and somehow this is what the attack's on. And they're being maligned as feminism is communism, social justice is kind of extreme and overturning of the social mm-hmm. order. That's also what's at stake because there is clearly a pushback sort of to the advances that have been made and yeah. we're relitigating things.
1: In the name of merit, in the name of a certain kind of inequality, a justified inequality, but then also with Trump of white supremacy, of a kind of not even reasoned commitment to the superiority of white men in American society. And I don't think that's, I hope it's not the dominant trend, but it's certainly one that he's allowed to be articulated in in both language and behavior that has been really disturbing in these last months.
0: I think that's right. And I think that's what's gone hand in hand with what the university has been forced to do to legitimize types of conversations that really nobody in their right mind thought were worth having anymore. Mm -hmm. And suddenly we're back thinking about things or metaphorically litigating things. We had a a judge a few weeks ago from New Orleans, from Louisiana, Judge Vitter, who wouldn't answer the question whether she agrees with the Supreme Court ruling in Brown versus Board of Education. She resisted that Because she thought, well, then I would take an opinion at the slippery slope to who knows where. But what has happened, we've reopened questions that Mm. I thought had been settled as you started out saying the university settles certain things. At some point, you know certain things and you kind of move on and you build on that knowledge.
1: And even the society settled them. What happened to the judgment of history? (laughs) It was like Nazism was over. Evil was consigned to the past.
0: I I studied with philosopher Jean-Francois Lyotard and he said one of the great problems for Western civilization was that Nazism, in his quote, was put down like a rabid dog and not refuted by reason, mm. unquote. So he said basically it was defeated by force, thankfully, thank we everybody can thank you know the allies right. for that. And he said, but the thinking lingered a little bit. And I think this is what we're seeing somehow that people feel they need to reopen certain kind of questions and think they're worthwhile. Here in France and in other countries, as you pointed out. You know,
1: I've just been reading this book by James Whitford, which is about how American racism served as an example for Nazi anti-Semitism. It's an astonishing book. And one of the things that's really clear is that these Nazi theorists studied carefully court decisions, the whole separate but equal thing, the notion that misogyny, that mixed marriages were illegal in many states in in the United States, it's really astonishing. The sense you get from it is that while we've attributed so much to the Nazis, there was a lot of stuff that goes into nationalist white supremacist thinking that wasn't disqualified, that wasn't pushed away, that wasn't included in the evil that Nazism was supposed to represent. It's really it's, – it's it's a scary book to read in a way because so much – just as you're saying, so many of these ideas of the superiority of white racism – go back to Charlottesville, those Nazi flags and those Ku Klux Klan um, torches that, – that was – it wasn't dispensed with by a historical judgment, by the Nuremberg trials, because it existed in other places that didn't get – Defined in the same way.
0: Right. It stayed in the subterranean current and wasn't tamped down. I think there's a kind of note of hope. I think the students are realizing they can point out that this remains in America, and it doesn't just take one horrible incident, tragic incident in Charlottesville, just that kind of galvanized the country. And the students are saying, we have a tool, which is social media, to keep people aware that these things haven't gone away, and we are subjected to them.
1: But I think university administrators have to realize that they need those students on their side, that those students are not their enemy. They're not calling into question the mission and the brand of the university. But there has to be an alliance between those students and university administrators to protect the university as we knew it from these attacks. Otherwise, the the split that has in fact been affected by some of this First Amendment right-wing affirmative action for conservatives debate. that will allow the institution to be radically transformed, if not done away with in the way that that we knew it.
0: Yeah, so obviously you're encouraging me to have a couple conversations with students and student yes. leaders, which is great. So yeah. I really thank you for that last note. I think that's key. and I also think a country, has to listen to its young generation. I mm-hmm. think it's for the university to their students, but for a country to dismiss an entire generation's concerns is thankfully, by the laws of time and mortality, usually a mistake. <laughs> yeah, we that, hope we that hope. they're on the right side. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, Joan. Really been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. This has <laughs> uh, been great. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks.